Well, today, my, my dad, uh, who's an old-time preacher, used to use a term that um, it, it would bug him when he'd see preachers preaching the mamby-pamby gospel. That's what he called it. And what he meant by that is uh, all these uh, American preachers who preach life enhancement uh, rather than giving your life away. And, um, you know, Jesus does enhance your life, and it's the best life possible to live. But I promise you, uh, this is not mamby-pamby today. Uh, it's straight ahead, and I'm calling this sermon, Cross Your Heart. Do you, do you remember the term when you were a child, cross my heart, hope to die? The whole thought behind that with the kid was, I'll keep the promise, or I'll be committed to this. Uh, literally, you know, my heart is devoted to the point of death. That's what cross my heart, hope to die meant. This passage, is that's pretty much what Jesus is asking us to do, to take up our cross and devote our hearts completely. And we're going to talk about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come. Jesus, you are awesome. You gave your life for us. You you would never ask us to do something that you weren't willing to do yourself. And Jesus, you gave your life that we might know the Father, that our sins might be forgiven, that our relationship with the Father could be uh, in place. We're no longer separated by our sin because of what you've done on the cross. And, and Lord, you gave your lives and you ask us in this passage to give ours back to you since you gave yours for us. And so I pray that we would see it and open our hearts to doing it in Jesus' name, amen. So let's get right into it. If you wanna be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must. These are the words of Jesus coming right from the Bible. You know, um, someone wrote a book once called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And this is one of them. This is one of the hard things Jesus said. And let's take a look at what it is. First, he said, turn from your selfish ways. Mark 8, 34. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, and the he is Jesus here, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Turn from your selfish ways. Now, this is a setting Pastor Jeff preached last week where the 5,000 have just been fed. Jesus has been going about doing miracles, and Jesus pulls away with his disciples, so they're kind of in a private setting, but close by is the crowd, and the crowd is following him, I think Jesus senses for the wrong reasons, life enhancement. I believe that predominantly, a lot of what's going on in America with believers is life enhancement gospel, and it's not in the Bible as the main thing. They wanted the healings, they saw the bread and the fish and they wanted the miracles and they were following because he did cool stuff and Jesus says if you really want to be my follower then it's more of a commitment than that you must turn from your selfish ways let's get practical what's what's that mean selfish ways denying self is a, is a way another version says it It means that we have to put Jesus and following him ahead of all the pursuits of this world, ahead of all of these kinds of things, ahead of money. Material things or possessions. Too many Christians live for material things as their main priority. And sometimes they try to wrap it into the gospel, you know, with that prosperity thing. And there's just really bigger fish to fry. There's more important things to do than get stuff. And if you make the pursuit of your life, the main pursuit having things, houses, cars, 
businesses, um, whatever it may be, material things, then you can be seriously distracted from the main purposes of a Christian. Another thing that could distract us is fame, or someone might call it respect. I just want respect. And you pursue fame, and you go after it hard, and you want to be known on this earth. But I want to say to you that being known on this earth is very different than being known in heaven. Let me say that again. Everybody listen. To be known on this earth on this earth is very different than to be known in heaven. And Jesus is saying, I want you to live your life in such a way that you are known to the Father. You are a follower. What it means is you're not asking God to bless what you're doing because a lot of Christians are into that. Lord, bless what I'm doing. I mean, check your prayers out. Make a log. Are we praying for things that we want God to do for us? Do we ever come to the point in our prayers where we say, Lord, what is it that you have for me to do today? Right, we invite him in for the things we want him to bless but, and we ask him to bless what we're doing but what Jesus is, say is saying is, I want you to do what I'm blessing. He's given you gifts. He will work through you in an amazing way. Another thing that can be a distraction is, and it's similar to fame and respect, but it's different, power, authority. We want to be somebody. Position. Another thing that can be distracting is companionship. I've seen Christians derailed because companionship is their most important focus. Even in marriage, now catch this, even in a marriage, if your companion, your spouse is ahead of Jesus in priority and yet relationship, it's, it's, gonna, it's not gonna be the best relationship it can be. Jesus has to be number one. And when he is, the marriage will be better, not worse, because he'll lead you to love one another. But you're leading one another by example towards a focus of a life lived for God. Now, I know it's true that you can glorify God with money, fame, power, and companionship. As a matter of fact, an argument could be made that you could serve him in a better way with all these things. And I, I, I think it's possible to serve him with all these things greatly. What I'm saying to you is that if those things get ahead of him, any one of them, we've got a problem. The bottom line is we should live our lives to build God's kingdom and not our own. You've heard me talk about, um, some of you anyway, not, not wanting to um, go into the ministry. I didn't, I didn't want to be a preacher. It's, as it turns out, it's been way more fun and exciting and an adventure uh, much better than I thought it would be. I've enjoyed it. But I didn't want to do it. When I was little, you know, in the Pentecostal ranks is where I grew up and people had, several times had laid hands on me and said, you're going to be a pastor and... Words had come forward and every time, I mean there was three or four times specifically that I can remember as a kid, every time I didn't want it to be true. I was hoping they weren't right. And there were several reasons. And I want to try to explain some of that to you today as just an honest struggle I had as a young man. Um, My dad uh, became a preacher when I was about uh, nine years old. And from the time he became a preacher, we didn't have very much materially. Um, We would have been um, probably among the poorest in our community. 
Uh, now, we had a lot of things that were great intact, right? We had one another, we had family, we had God, and, and, and that was all good. But let me just tell you a few things I remember as part of my struggle and, and why I didn't want to go into the ministry. Uh, I remember someone saying in junior high, because I wasn't invited as uh, part of the team to, to serve at a banquet, I remember the whispers and someone got back to me and said, well, they're saying that you weren't invited to serve because your clothes aren't nice enough. I remember that. I remember not being able to buy quality basketball shoes and I was a pretty serious athlete in high school and slipping and sliding across the floor, uh, not a good option for competition. But I remember not having the money to do it. Um, I remember um, not wanting to invite people in high school over to our house because we lived in the unfinished basement of the church and I was embarrassed. That was just normal stuff for me when I was young. I remember, um, I guess we weren't uh, completely poor because I remember my dad giving me a car one day at about 17 years old, uh, but he drove it up and it was a red Rambler station wagon, fire engine red, with plaid upholstery and three on the tree. And uh, I I didn't want to break his heart, but I wanted to toss those keys back to him and say, you can just keep that one. I don't don't think I need it. Uh, I I remember... um, <laughs> being a little embarrassed about that car at school, but it was a car, right? And I did, I did drive it. Uh, but I remember once an argument ensued about whether we should go in my car to lunch or in the brand new Camaro that my friend had. And as a joke, they all chose the Rambler, and so we went, uh, we went together. Uh, and I, I remember uh, my senior year in high school that my parents didn't have money for Christmas gifts, and so we just took whatever the the local charity gave to us, and uh, at 17 years old, my parents gave me a candle-making set for Christmas, because that's all we had, and I did my best to look happy when I got it, and um, so, so growing up, I started to have this struggle, to me, a ministry equated with poverty, which it doesn't necessarily, you don't have to take a vow of poverty, don't let, you know, you, you can have money, you just, get, you just can't have money owning you in life. But I, I thought, you know what, I think I can serve God and I would like to be more like the rest of the community and have a few things so I think I won't go the route of ministry. That's just my struggle, I'm being honest with you. And then I remember getting to college and starting to feel the tug of God as I turned my heart back to him. And when I counted the cost, I mean, I can take you to an 18-page paper that I did in college that talked about material possessions and through it I can see my struggle to give it up and say, I will not live my life for money or towards money. I'm gonna give it away to God. And not only that, I came to a conclusion. You know, I met this amazing lady who uh, ended up being my wife and we were engaged. And uh, I came to the conclusion that I was gonna go into ministry. It was changing directions. I mean, in the middle of our relationship, I was feeling like I'm, I'm gonna be a minister. And I wasn't sure Karen knew what that would mean. To me, it equated with poverty. And I went to her, and my dad was also heavily criticized and went through a lot of struggles in small churches, and I just didn't want it. I'm just being honest with you. I, didn't, I thought, you know, I'll serve God, but not, I don't want to be a preacher. So I went to Karen and said, hey, uh, I'm surrendering to this call that God has on my life, and if you marry me, I mean, I wanted her to, but I wanted her to know what she was getting in. If you do, we're probably not going to ever have much, and um, sometimes pastors are criticized, and that might be part of our lives. So I want you to think carefully about, is this really what you want to do? 
And man, she gave me a great answer that day. Uh, She said, I don't know if I'm called to be a pastor's wife, but I know I'm called to be your wife. So if you're going to be a pastor, then I'm in. Because that's just what we're going to do. But I, I counted the cost and I was willing to have nothing. Now, as it turns out, I've had a little, little more than I ever thought I would. Lord, the Lord's blessed us. But I'm gonna tell you something. I don't need a house to be okay. I don't need nice cars to be okay. I wanna live now. Now, this commitment for me hasn't been just once and I made it. I have to do it quite often, right? Don't we all? To just remind myself, yeah, I'm not living for that. And I don't wanna be distracted by that. Can you, if God, let's, so a follower of Christ, let's just think about this. If God told you to sold your house, sell your house today, would you do it? If God told you to go somewhere and he made it obvious, are you willing to go? Now we're talking about a follower of Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 15, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. The whole point about being a follower of Christ is eternal perspective. It's about his kingdom, not mine. Second thought he gives here, and it's a strong one. He tells people to take up their their cross. We read the first part of verse 34. Let's read the second part. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul it's interesting as I read this passage I usually read several commentaries most people think I can just get up here and talk and that it's all just in me and easy but I have to study for hours the word of God and see what commentators say and try to make sure the Bible says to preach or study to show yourself approved and I try to I try to do that but the commentators were a little bit um at odds in this passage. Some were saying that lose your soul means you're distracted in this life and, 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 and you're, you're wasting your life and you didn't do it for anything that counts. Others say you could actually lose your soul. Well, what is it? I think it could, it's probably both when people are wondering like that, that you can, you can get so distracted and some people live and never come to Jesus and they live for the world and their souls are lost for eternity. So here's, here, here's a thought to think about. We become believers by trusting Christ, confessing Jesus as the Son of God, that he died on a cross for us and rose again. That's how you become a believer, but that is not how you become a disciple. Jesus is giving us a call to discipleship in this passage. What he calls a follower. We become disciples by surrendering everything to him. By making his way the priority. By taking up our cross and following him. So what's it mean to take up 
your cross. We've sanitized the cross today. It's cool and it's beautiful. I saw one this morning, a gold chain with the cross on it. It was cool, and I think it meant something to the person who was wearing it. It's a, it's a symbol of devotion. Some people who aren't believers wear it just because they think it's a cool piece of jewelry. It doesn't mean anything to them. But we have um, T-shirts that have cool crosses on it because it, it's, it's cool now. It's beautiful, right? Because it means Jesus died there for us. And, and people have tattoos as a sign of their devotion with the cross. I think you should be careful with that because it gets a little warbly as you get older. The, you know, the, just, it doesn't look as pretty as a, a cross sometimes as we grow. But people mean it as devotion and, and beauty, and, and I think that's very cool. As a matter of fact, every now and then I'll see a, a cross or a scripture as a tattoo, and I love to just ask a kid, what's that mean to you? And often it's just an awesome testimony. I love it. But in Jesus' day, I mean, it's sanitized now, right? Nobody knew what, what he was going to do. They didn't get it, right? We found that out later. And he said he had to die on a cross. And Peter said, no, this can't happen to you. And he said, it's the, God, is, God the Father has willed it. It's supposed to happen. The cross didn't mean to them in that moment that he spoke it what it means to us today. Because Jesus hadn't died. What did it mean to them then in that culture? Because that's what God is saying to us about our commitment. Here's what it meant. The cross was a symbol of death. To carry your cross would mean in that culture they would take criminals that were convicted and they would put a, the cross beam on their back and they would walk up to a cross and then they would be placed on that cross and their hands would be nailed or tied and they would be killed and executed. The cross, when Jesus spoke about it, meant death. Take up your cross? What's that mean? It means to be willing. Now, this is our call. This is not mamby-pamby now. Here we go. This is the cross my heart, hope to die part that I started the sermon with. It means to be willing to endure hardship in every way in life, including persecution all the way to physical death. That's a hard saying of Jesus right there. If you want to be my follower, then take up your cross. John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels. Why, why do we give our all? Why do we give our lives for Christ? Because when you're committed, that's when the impact really starts to happen. A plentiful harvest of new lives, it says. Now verse 25. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me. Now that you heard me say it's a call to discipleship and that's what he means by follow me. There they're linked together. If you want to be my disciple, follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. So here's the real question. Will we waste our lives or invest them? Becoming a committed follower of Jesus Christ saves us from the tragedy of a wasted life. Living our lives for things that don't really count. Let's talk Steve Jobs for just a moment. Um, one of the greatest innovators of our time 
a brilliant man. Some would say a genius. Uh, what he did with computers and formats and, uh, you know, I have an iPhone 4S and um, it is just one cool product. And even the other smartphones have all learned something from what Jobs was doing with these. And, and there's several good ones, I know. He was a genius. He impacted our generation technologically uh, as much as any other person in his era. But we know from the book that came out, his, auto, or his biography, autobiography, that he, that he had some regrets. And here's some of the things he said. He regretted that he didn't spend time with his kids. And it's well known that he didn't treat his coworkers very well. As a matter of fact, he treated them really badly. And I don't want to be too harsh, and I know this is a judgment of sort, and it's up to the Lord, but let's just be real. Most likely, in the end, he lost his soul for eternity. Because he was into religions apart from Jesus Christ. Now, I know on his deathbed he could have, and, you know, I, I don't know what happened. Maybe he got up to heaven, St. Peter was there, and looking in the book, and Jobs said, hey, you know, I have an app for that. And, and, uh... <clears throat> But it wouldn't have mattered if you had an app if your name wasn't in there, right? And here's what I'm saying. It's possible to gain the whole world and be a success in the eyes of men and yet have nothing to show for your life when you stand before God. Zero that counts for eternity. Mark 8.35 If you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news you will save it. Even for Christians, you know, I, there, there, there's a, um, there's, metaphorically, let me speak about this, there's a hole in every heart that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. Fulfillment comes in Jesus, but even for the believer, I don't think the hole completely closes up and fulfillment completely comes until we stop thinking of self and start thinking of building his kingdom. When we start to walk with him and hear from him and know that every day is exciting and it's an adventure because he's leading us and he has a plan for our lives and something of eternal consequence is happening. Did you know you can do amazing things and affect generations? And when I say amazing, I'm saying if you win one soul to Christ, you can affect generations till Jesus comes. The course of families are changed. That is eternal reward. When we are talking about bring a day's salary, that may sound really weird, to feed the poor of the world in Jesus' name. The deal is when you get to heaven, that stuff's the stuff that counts. Laying treasure up for eternity. The Bible speaks in Corinthians about wood, hay, and stubble and the things in life that we pursue that are all burned up and mean nothing for eternity. And then gold and silver when they're tried, it's the things like winning a soul and ministering to someone and and loving someone. And I'm not talking about becoming a full-time preacher or going to a foreign mission field. I had a brother come to me between services and he really blessed me with the story. He's retired. He lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He went to church here for years. Some of you know him, Ken Goodman. Is that right? Yeah. And, and um, he drives a bus there now in Albuquerque. And he said, Pastor, I, it's a ministry every day. He just told me this between services. 
said, there's 160 kids that I pick up. He even knows how many kids, and he wants to know each kid. I'm talking about your life becoming significant no matter where you're at and letting God lead you. He said he tries to talk to every kid and engage those kids as they come on the bus and just love on them, call their names. And he told me the other day a junior hire was about to get off the bus and he turned to him and said, you know you're the best teacher I have. And then he turned and went down the steps. And I said, Ken, you know what he meant by that? He meant, I think you care about me more than everybody else I'm coming in contact with that's called a teacher. Ken is living his life for Jesus every day and seeing what he's doing is significant and, and not asking God to bless what he's doing, but he's, he's doing what God is blessing. People who are willing to give their lives for the cause of Christ will be the most fulfilled and make the biggest impact. I think of um, the term giving yourself up. Uh, and, and sometimes we say it in sports, sell out. And to sell out means I'm gonna give everything I have in this moment to make this happen, right? That's an athletic terminology. And um, Jesus is calling us to sell out. To, to give everything for these moments that we have. Life's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's a mist. It'll ha- it's going to happen so fast. And then all, all that's left is eternity. I love the poet who said, one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I think of a person who's willing to give everything to the point of death, that's a person that makes an impact. Think of D-Day and that generation that was willing to hit the beach in Normandy and thousands died as they kept moving forward off those boats. We, not, we may not, now I, I, you know, I don't know, but we may not have been able to worship freely here today if Hitler had taken over the world. And those men had purpose when they hit that beach and if they weren't sold out, they would have headed right back for the boat and turned it around. But they had a purpose that was bigger than even life for them that day. And that purpose is that their families would have freedom, that America could move forward with the vision that God had for it. I'm glad that they were sold out that day. And I want to use that to illustrate when you sell out, that's when you can make an impact. Third thought now. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. Sometimes I read scriptures like this and if, and if I just said it, people would say, well, you're being too harsh and that's just too strong. And, but I have to remind people sometimes, I'm reading the Bible. These are not my thoughts. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in this adulteress, <clears throat> And sinful days, in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person. So Jesus says to us, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. When I return in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. 
That's a strong saying from Jesus there. To refuse the demands of discipleship expressed in verse 34 that I read to you today and we talked about is essentially to be ashamed of Jesus and his teaching. And he says, if you refuse to identify with me, then I'm going to be ashamed of you. I'm not sure I know exactly what that means, but it's not a positive context, for sure. I think of um, a friend of mine and Karen's. Um, she was telling us one day about her family member, I believe it was one of her family members, who ended up getting uh, divorced from her husband. She didn't realize it, but her husband had developed a relationship with some high school girls in the community and and ended up being the demise of their marriage. She was very naive, and she remembers going to high school games with her husband, and him saying, hey, why don't we just take off our wedding rings and act like we're dating, and that'll be more romantic. And she was so naive, she just said, okay, so they'd take off the rings and go into the game. Well, his purpose was he didn't want these other girls to know he was married. Sometimes I wonder if believers aren't like that with Jesus. Uh, we identify with him when it's easier, but when we get in public situations, we just like to take that ring off and not, not wear that right now. And I wonder how it makes Jesus feel when we're not willing to be associated with him. It's a bad feeling. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I have where people are embarrassed to be with you. Well, come to think it, if you have a teenager, you have experienced that. <laughs> it's not a great feeling. And um, Jesus gave everything for you and for me. Completely committed to the point of death that we might be reunited with the Father. And he's saying to us, don't be ashamed of me, please. Are you willing to stand up and be counted for Jesus in this generation, your generation? Even if you're persecuted. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. I think that ought to give us pause and thought. If we're not ever being persecuted, maybe we're not standing up publicly anywhere. Because if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Anybody out there know the name Justin Bieber? Raise your hand if you know who Justin Bieber is, all right? Man, I saw one little girl shoot her hand up quick back there. I think he just turned 18, um, and I don't know what you think about him, but he has over 7 million Twitter followers. He's probably more popular in his youth than Elvis Presley ever was. Uh, and one of the cool things, he's, he's a believer. Not a Bieber believer, but a believer in Christ. I think the coolest part of his story is his single mom who didn't abort him and um, taught him how to love Jesus. I think that's one of the great stories um, that's not being told these days. Probably one that 
really counts in heaven. But I, I, don't, I don't know exactly where he's at, and I'm not vouching for everything he's going to do in the future, but I'm telling you, I like what he did recently. Listen to what Justin Bieber said. He told this to Billboard in November 2010 while promoting his autobiography. Here's what Justin Bieber said. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sins. I believe that I have a relationship and I'm able to talk to him. And really, he's the reason I'm here. So I definitely have to remember that. As soon as I start forgetting, I've got to click back and be like, you know, this is why I'm here. He wasn't embarrassed to be associated with Jesus when it could have been a demise for his career. Now, there's a passage in Proverbs that I really love. It's just before one of the uh, most famous passages in the Bible, Proverbs um, 3, 5, and 6. I believe it's verse 4, and it says something like this. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And really, we won't have the impact, and we're really not like God if we don't have love and faithfulness. Because we can have faithfulness and be legalistic and have no love. And we can have love and be permissive and not even care if anybody gets saved because we, you think everything's okay. But the two wings of the airplane when it comes to impact and a relationship with God that keeps everything intact are love and faithfulness. The plane doesn't fly without either. That's where impact is. Jesus was full of grace and truth, the Bible said. Same thing, love and faithfulness. And I love it that it says, write them on the tablet of your heart. And here's what it says, for then you'll win favor with God. And I always believed that, but I remember one day I was reading it and it said this, if you have love and faithfulness, you win favor with God and a good name with man. Wait, what? You mean you live with love and faithfulness and even the world will respect that? Tim Tebow. My daughter told me recently, you need to be careful about talking about Tim Tebow so much. I don't think I have a man crush, but he loves Jesus is the deal. That's what I like about it. And he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. I have not accepted him as my personal savior, just so you know. But you know, I mean, have you ever seen him on someone so much as they've been on this kid? And I'm not even talking about his plan, but he, he just not will, he's willing to be associated with Jesus and he's not ashamed. And he's not mean-spirited, and he's got love and faithfulness, right? His life is backing up his words. He's caring about people. He's, he's, he, he's doing a great job. Pray for these young men and young ladies that are willing. They're gonna, they can have great impact in our culture. I believe God is raising people up even out of here. Listen to me. I believe God is raising young men and young women up out of here that will make an impact for him in these ways. And I think it's cool. But with all the negativity about Tim Tebow in a survey that happened just recently that they've done every year for years, do you know who the most popular athlete in the world is in that survey this year? Tim Tebow. It wasn't about being the best athlete. It was about being the most popular athlete ever. He's scorned and despised, and yet he's really loved. Let love and faithfulness be in your heart. And you'll win favor with God and a good name with man. There'll be a lot of people, I mean, I've read things where people say, I don't like his game at all, but there's something about that guy. I just, I'm just glad when people, they're, they're, they're the people that make impact, people that are not ashamed to be associated with Jesus Christ.
People say, well, I don't want, you shouldn't take Jesus into the public arena. Really, are we to obey God or man? Am I supposed to make them feel better by saying, okay, I'll do what you say. I won't speak of Jesus. I won't talk about the good news. What happens then? Then nobody, how will they know unless someone tells them the Bible says in Romans? But you're going to take heat over that. Absolutely. We're called to take heat. For the sake of the gospel, we're taking up our cross with love and faithfulness, sharing the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to set men free. Being willing. I hope you're, I'm trying to motivate you today to get in the game. Being totally committed and sell out. Pastor Roger, um, some, you know he played pro football, right? Maybe you don't know. And he was an All-American at Oregon State, which is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> Especially in those days. And he coached in the community here. As a matter of fact, he coached at Tualatin High School. I love Tualatin High School, if you're wondering. I love our high school. I love Tualatin High School. I love kids. And so does Jesus. He loves them all, everywhere. Roger was coaching for the freshman football team there several years ago. As a matter of fact, Aaron was on the team that Roger was coaching. We were in the last game of the year. Both teams were undefeated. It was Forest Grove, and Forest Grove was, they were just big and bruising. Now, there really is no league title in freshman football if you're in high school, but this definitely was a league championship because both teams undefeated, whoever wins it, you know, basically wins league. So it was their championship game that year. They don't go into the playoffs. And it was played right here at Tualatin. And I don't know if you've been to the JV field there, but there's some stands, and those stands were packed that day because uh, both people from both cities were there. And the, the way it's configured is right below was the Tualatin team and the coaches, just right below the stands there. Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. And it came down to the end, and the score is zero to zero with these two teams that are undefeated. And Roger's coaching the offensive line. I said the defensive line in the first service, but Roger fixed me between services. <laughs> and he did something near the end of the game on the final drive of the game, which, by the way, went for a touchdown. He put, pulled those kids together. Now, he's the offensive line coach, and so he's not right out front where the coach is. He pulls them all right up. He pulls, just pulls them in, grab face masks and shirts and telling those guys to get in. They all go around him, and then he starts yelling. Pastor Roger yelling at these kids. And he says this, pretty, he wasn't yelling at them, he was motivating them. And he said this, I'm just gonna say it in this service and put up with it. He said, I don't wanna see your butt moving backwards. Do you understand me? I want your butts moving forward on every play. Let's go, we're gonna beat them with this drive. And they went in there smaller and probably outmanned and they drove the ball down the field and we scored in the last minute to win the game because their butts weren't moving backwards. <laughs> now here's what I'm saying. I'm gonna change it to a different B word because I'm done with my cursing from the pulpit this morning. <laughs> I don't wanna see your bottoms moving backwards. We're supposed to go forward. Stop 
messing around. People are dying. They don't know him. We know. He's called us. We're not taking our crosses up. Are you in the game? Ouch. I'm not sure the Lord was in that. Don't waste your life living for stuff. You're not a bus driver. You're a servant of the Lord. Going to minister to people today. You don't own a business. He owns your business. And you're ready. Whatever direction he says go. That's what he's looking for. Will you go? Let me close with this story. There's a king who is a wicked king in 1 Kings 18. His name was Ahab, married to a woman named Jezebel, which is a name still associated with wicked women today in our culture. They killed the prophets of the Lord. They set up false prophets. As a matter of fact, in the story, there's 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asher. And anytime the true prophets of God would show up publicly, they would kill them. And a man named Elijah hears from God. I'm talking about when you're sold out, the impact that can happen. And he hears from the Lord and he says to one of the other prophets, go tell the king I'm coming into town. He doesn't have to look for me anymore because he was looking to kill him. And the guy was so afraid, he said, he might kill me just for saying it. And he said, no, you'll be okay, go tell him. So he tells Ahab, Elijah's coming right into town. And a crowd starts to gather and Elijah shows up and he talks to King Ahab and here's how the conversation goes. Ahab saw him and exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Elijah says, I've made no trouble for Israel. You and your family are the troublemakers. I can imagine that caused a little murmur in the crowd. Oh, he shouldn't have said that. He's a, he's a goner. They might have said he's a dead man. That's right. He was dead to himself when he walked into that place. But alive to God. You're the troublemaker, he said, for you've refused to obey the commands of the Lord and worship the images of Baal instead. And then Elijah said, let's find out who the one true God is. And let me just tell the story because I, I don't want to read the 20 or 30 verses there. He said, let's get two bulls. Let's put them on an altar. Let's put wood around the altar and then we'll call on our gods. You call on your gods with the little G. I put that part in, little G. And I'll call upon my God and we'll see which one brings fire down to prove that they're the one true God. And they agreed to it. It was a challenge. And the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they put the, they, they cut the, cow up and they put it on the altar and they danced and they cut themselves and by the way anytime you cut yourself kids are cutting themselves today it's it's a satanic origin the whole cutting yourself thing anytime the enemy gets involved it's he, he lends he always brings us to self-destruction and they cut themselves and they called upon god all day long their gods and nothing happened and the crowd's watching morning through lunchtime into the afternoon nothing and Elijah mocks them. Says, where's your God? Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's using the bathroom. It's really in there. NLT says relieving himself. 
And then his time comes in the afternoon and he says, get some water. Pour it on the, on, on, on the animal sacrifice. Pour it on the wood. And they, they got 12 buckets, big jars full of water and poured it on. And now he started to call upon God. He said, God, show him that you're the one true God. And when he prayed in front of the whole community, fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. Verse 38, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, now I'm talking about courage. I'm talking about selling out. I'm talking about one. Did you know God plus one is always the majority? As a matter of fact, God is the majority. But if, if, if you get in, you'll never be outnumbered if you're following him. He has all power and authority. And when all the people saw it, they fell down, face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord, he is God. The whole nation started to shift towards the one true God because one man was willing to be courageous. I want to appeal to you with the same appeal the prophet gave to the people that day. Before they did this whole little exercise when fire came down, Elijah stood in front of them and said in verse 21, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Follow is the same word Jesus used. I'm asking you to be more than a believer today. I'm asking you to be a disciple. Jesus is asking us to take up our cross. 